You're listening to The Central Cast, recorded each week in front of a live audience in Glendale, California. All right, so our text this morning comes from the book of James, chapter 5, where it says this. Come now, you rich people, weep and wail for the miseries that are coming to you. (laughs) Your riches have rotted and your clothes are moth-eaten. Your gold and silver have rusted, and the rust will be evidence against you, and it will eat your flesh like fire. Some pretty strong words. He goes on, you have laid up treasure for the last days. Listen. The wages of the laborers who mowed your fields, which you kept back by fraud, cry out. And the cries of the harvesters have reached the ears of the Lord of hosts. You have lived on the earth in luxury and in pleasure. You have fattened your hearts on a day of slaughter. You have condemned and murdered the righteous one who does not resist you. The word of the Lord. Pretty strong language, yes. Uh, These are some strong words about the consequences of economic injustice. Similar ideas, similar language can be found in the Gospels, where Jesus says things like, it's easier for a camel to pass through the eye of a needle than it is for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Or consider the parable of the rich man and Lazarus. Right? What is that parable about? Well, the rich man dies and goes to hell, and Lazarus dies and goes to heaven, and the whole reason why they end up where they are, keep in mind it's just a parable, this isn't meant to be taken in a hyper-literal fashion, but the whole reason why the rich man goes to hell is because he neglected the poor. Wasn't because he had incorrect theology or didn't have, you know, the right religious rituals or whatever because he mistreated the poor who was lazarus the poor beggar outside his gate that starved to death and lazarus goes to heaven simply because he was poor and mistreated in this life that's it no deeper theology afoot just a parable from jesus about the consequences of economic injustice you know The bottom line is early Christianity was deeply invested, no pun intended, in the cause of economic justice and, frankly, castigating the rich for hoarding wealth. The New Testament, throughout the New Testament, the rich are demonized. I mean, there's no two ways about it. They're demonized. The strongest language is used against them by Jesus and his earliest followers. Nowadays, such reading such texts, as I just read, the one from James, that, that'll get you called a socialist, a Marxist, a woke leftist, and even, even a non-Christian. Caring about economic injustice and inequality today and defining the gospel as being preoccupied with those things will actually get you called a non-Christian. It's astounding. And so in the spirit of caring about economic justice, I want to talk this morning about the differences between capitalism and socialism, which is something we touched upon like four years ago 
only. We never really talk about this model. We never really talk about capitalism and socialism or even really economic justice too much. Uh, and I want to talk specifically about the differences between capitalism, capitalism and socialism, not because I want to reduce economic justice down to a particular ideology like socialism, as if it's like a silver bullet that cures all problems. Or, but I want to talk about capitalism and socialism because the topic of economic justice is so abstract and so broad that it's really best to kind of couch that conversation in some terms and ideas that are more specific. And so that's why I want to couch this in a conversation about capitalism and socialism. And uh, it's also because there's so much misunderstanding about what capitalism and socialism are. And um, this in turn, how I think it influences how people often think about economic justice. So having a better understanding of these of these ideologies um, can help us think, I think, better about what economic justice might look like and how we might be able to participate in that. Often when people are asked what capitalism is, this is, Cad uh, DeLay says this, he's actually a college professor that engages with students on a regular basis about the, this subject matter, he says that when I ask people, my students, what college students, what capitalism is, often they'll respond and say something like, well, it's the freedom to buy and sell stuff, <laughs> or it's the freedom to own your own business and to, you know, get wealthy. Well, no, uh, not really. And therefore, socialism is often defined as the opposite of that, right? That socialism prohibits the buying and selling of stuff, or socialism prohibits entrepreneurialism or the ability to, you know, create wealth. That's just not true. And those are overly simplistic definitions that are very common today um, that are frankly just false and, and used, I think, basically to demonize or marginalize socialism. The fact is there are many different forms of socialism and capitalism. Those are very complex ideas. Some kinds of socialism are more capitalistic and some kinds of capitalism are more socialistic. So we need to have a nuanced understanding here. And to be clear, I'm not an economist and I'm gonna be offering my understanding based upon my limited study. And so I'm interested to hear your reaction your disagreements, your comments about all this. So I'm doing my best, but we need to have a nuanced understanding here while also understanding, I think, that there is no like perfect economic system. I'm, I'm not utopian about this, all right? I think we need to resist this, any kind of utopian thinking. There are only systems that are less worse than others. <laughs> There's no perfect system, right? The big problem with capitalism, and I am going to critique capitalism more than socialism, there's, there's a surprise, right? Uh, the big problem with capitalism, I think, begins with the meaning of the word capitalism itself, which means the amassing of capital, the amassing of surplus, the amassing of wealth at the top of a corporate or social ladder. This is literally what the word capitalism means. It means the amassing of capital among a select few at the expense of many others. Capitalism cannot function unless a large working class work to enrich one or a handful of others. That, that's basically what capitalism is, in my opinion.
The word socialism, on the other hand, basically means valuing social relationships and the concerns and interests of a group more than the concerns and interests of you know, a select few elites. Socialism is about using capital, it's about using surplus, using profits to benefit the many rather than the few. In, in the context of a business, socialism values collective ownership over private ownership. It values collective benefit over private or individual benefit because it's the collective workforce that actually is responsible for the generation of capital. That's basically what I think socialism means. However, what often gets called socialism is really just capitalism in disguise, often enough. When you think of the big socialist experiments of the 20th century, like China and Russia, you're really looking at grossly unjust and violent systems that are actually examples of extreme capitalism under the guise of socialism where the general public was equalized into this impoverished working class that worked to enrich the party leaders in Moscow and Beijing. All the wealth was held at the top of a ruling political class. That kind of socialism, in scare quotes, is really a kind of crypto-capitalism. And this reveals an important point. Depending on your definition of socialism and capitalism, the choice between them can actually be a false one. If all one is choosing between is wealth being amassed by uh, and controlled by private individuals or private corporations or individuals like Elon Musk or Jeff Bezos, or wealth being amassed and controlled by governments and politicians and men like Vladimir Putin, who arguably is the richest person in the world, I'd argue that both of those choices are really a kind of capitalism, despite being labeled otherwise. Only an economic system that eliminates or limits exploitation and distributes profits and capital to as many people as possible and as equally as possible, only a system that gives the working class considerable control over the means of production is truly socialist. So I would argue that most of the left today in the United States is not actually socialist, no matter how much the right cries out that they are. I don't know if you've noticed this. You know, being for universal health care does not make one a socialist. Being for student debt forgiveness or reduction does not really make one a socialist. Being for, you know, a social net, a social safety net, things like Medicare and Social Security. That was actually called socialism when it first came out, believe it or not. No, those things aren't really, I mean, they're quasi-socialist in nature, but just because you're for those things does not make one a socialist. It doesn't make your country socialist just because you have those particular programs. And if you notice, but Biden, President Biden is often called a socialist. He is not a socialist, not really right? It's ridiculous. He, along with most of the Democrat Party, are actually just as much in bed with big business as really the Republican Party. So what we, what we really have today in our two-party system here in America is the choice between extreme capitalism and a less extreme form of capitalism, really, I guess. There is no true socialist choice. 
And this is really the current global situation too. And it's led to the gross inequality that we see today. We now live in a world where 26 people, the 26 most wealthiest people on the planet own as much wealth as 3.8 billion others. In other words, half of the global population, 26 people or more wealthy, own as much wealth and resources as half of the other world population, 3.8 billion people. To put this in perspective, it would be this way. This is a scalable perspective. Imagine if all of America, 300, approximately 320 million people, everybody was this impoverished working class and we all worked for three others, for three people who were multi, multi-billionaires and owned everything. And the rest of us had to work for them and make minimum wage or less. That is the scale of the current global economic situation. Think about that. Only a system that is grossly unjust would function that way or allow for that. And we're told it is the best way for things to run. This is just the way things have to be. It's like God ordained. Capitalism is really a kind of deity, a kind of theology, actually. We'll get to that in a minute. But I mean, it's presupposed. Oh, things operate this way because it must be the best way for it to work. Otherwise, why would the world work this way? People just assume that. And I think it's grossly unjust. So when I critique capitalism, and when most people today I know critique capitalism, we are critiquing the amassing of unbelievable, unconscionable. You really cannot even understand even how much $1 billion is. Yes, it's a, it's a thousand million, but you really can't even conceptualize how much even $1 billion is. When we are critiquing capitalism, we are really critiquing this kind of unbelievable amassing of wealth and capital among a few elites and the exploitation, the exploitation of countless others in order to achieve and maintain that. To be clear, when I critique capitalism and when most people I know who, who critique capitalism do so, we are not critiquing um, entrepreneurialism or self-determinism or the ability to earn a good living. I'm not criticizing competition. I'm not criticizing private ownership. And to be clear, those things might not even be capitalistic per se, but better defined as just Western liberal values. And yeah, that's tied into capitalism, I guess, but not inherently so, perhaps. Those values, entrepreneurialism, private ownership, self-determinism, those values can exist in either in a capitalist or a socialist system. So when I or, or most people are criticizing capitalism, we're really just criticizing that kind of gross inequality and the ability to create, to kind of have the world that we have. We're criticizing exploitation, the amassing of astonishing amounts of wealth among a select few. I wanna to finish today by reflecting briefly on how these matters play out in the church, because this is a church, and so it's relevant. <laughs> uh, because in a lot of ways, the church embodies capitalism today. The American church in particular embodies in ways that the church doesn't even understand or acknowledge these kind of capitalistic values or gods. In a sense, the god of the American church is, in fact, really capitalism. It's not even this supreme being on high. It's really a kind of capitalistic or capitalism itself. 
obvious examples would be the prosperity gospel, which I think we're all familiar with, uh, which is this message that if you just, you know, give money to the church, aka tithe, and live right and believe the right things and jump through all the right religious hoops, God will bless you with health and wealth, right? It's this, really, it's kind of like an investment plan. You invest in God and your return will be financial or physical, health and wealth. You'll achieve your dreams and goals. God is there as the ultimate life enhancement product, we're told. Um, almost no one says it that plainly anymore, except maybe the most brash televangelists, right, um, on late night TV. But the message is still cryptically there in many mainstream churches. It's this, it's couched in this idea that God has a purpose and a plan for your life. Have you heard that message before? God has a purpose and a plan for your life. Uh, and this purpose and this plan will bring you fulfillment and happiness. He wants to help you achieve your dreams and your goals. He wants you to have financial peace and the, a rewarding career and, and a blessed marriage. And, you know, all of that will give you fulfillment and happiness. And, you know, the lifestyle that you've always wanted is at hand. God has it in store for you. You just need to do X, Y, and Z. <laughs> Tithe, come to this church, believe in this message, be a good person live righteously, buy my book, The Purpose Driven Life, or whatever it's called, whatever it's called, Your Best Life Now by Joel Osteen, right? It's, that's what's being trafficked. It's, but that's capitalism. That is the gospel filtered through the, the American gospel of capitalism. That is the God of capitalism, right? And it is the total commodification of Christianity, the ultimate capitalist theology for the ultimate consumer society, where God is the product, the church is the showroom floor or the, the store, the pastor is the salesman, the sermons are the sales pitch, the worship songs are the jingles, right? That's how it works. And frankly, if you attend most churches, even here in LA, on Sunday morning, the hipster, you know, churches, Mosaic, I'm going to name names, Mosaic, Re Reality, Zoe, I don't know, is Hillsong still around? Are they still functional? Well, anyway, we'll put them in that bucket as well. <laughs> um, we'll th throw them under the bus with the rest of them, I don't know. Uh, but yeah, you know, these those churches basically are as big as they are and popular as are because they're selling that capitalist theology that God has a purpose and a plan for your life. He wants you to become the artist that you know you're destined to be, right? He's going to help you get that contract, that gig. I mean, it's not overtly said that way, but if you listen to the talks, that's basically what's being inferred. God has a plan for you, a purpose for your life, and he wants to see you achieve your dreams and goals, and he's there for you. But you have to do X, Y, and Z. There's a, an economy here, an exchange. If you believe the right things, you come to this church, you volunteer, you get involved, you tithe. God will bless you. He'll give you the good life. If you don't, don't be surprised if you're not blessed. If you don't get that gig, you know, if you don't become all you can be, if you don't realize your dreams and goals, that's the capitalist theology that permeates so much of the American church today. And we we all grew up in it. I mean, not all of us, but most of us did who grew up in evangelicalism or who might have spent time at Mosaic or others, right? Um, 
it was basically the same sermon every Sunday. Emily and I went there for a few years when we first moved to LA and it was basically the same sermon every Sunday. And that's God has a purpose and a plan and he's going to help you self-actualize, become, you know, reach your destiny. That was kind of the message every Sunday. All right. The cross though, <laughs> the cross, you know, the symbol at the heart of Christianity is radically antithetical to all of those messages. What is the cross a symbol of? It is a symbol of victory. Is it a symbol of health and wealth? No, it's a symbol of humiliation and loss and lack and death and defeat. God is crucified. His disciples are scattered and they thought that he was going to save them from the Romans, but the Romans actually kill him. And the cross is a demonstration that God is, of course, in solidarity with the broken and the outcast. God himself is one of them. I was the hungry person you fed, the thirsty person you gave water to. I was the poor and the afflicted, Christ said. That's the cross. The cross is a symbol of those things. And the cross is actually a symbol of what happens to you if you stand up against capitalism. If you resist capitalism and the powers that be, the cross is what awaits you, so to speak. If you stand up against capitalism or any system built on greed, exploitation, or oppression, the cross is a symbol of what happens when you stand in solidarity with the poor and the oppressed and against the wealthy and the powerful as Jesus did. And I think as the church, we are called to embody, we are called to embody that anti-capitalist cruciform, meaning in the shape of a cross, cruciform way of life. And we do so not just in our critique of capitalism, but in our critique of racism and sexism and homophobia, such oppressive systems are often in place in our society because they serve the interests of capital. Have you thought about that before? Historically speaking, racism and white supremacy has served the interest of capital, and that's why they've been so prolific. Sexism and patriarchy has served the interest of capital, homophobia. Cisgender heteronormativity has served the interest of capital. Ignorance in many forms, anti-science bias that permeates so much of our church has served the interest of capital and exists and is prolific because so. These forms of systemic oppression and ignorance are as prolific and as powerful and influential as they've been because they serve the interest of capital. When you have, an, but specifically with regards to ignorance, when you have an unthinking population, when you have an unthinking population that believes reason and critical thinking are dangerous things to engage in, and that faith and, and trusting implicitly in authority figures like the church or the politician. When you have an unthinking population that values those things more than critical thought and reason, such a population can be easily manipulated and exploited and has been in numerous ways, specifically by capital, which is to say that religious fundamentalism 
specifically Christian fundamentalism, has served the interest of capital. Think about Christian nationalism, which is perhaps one of the most obvious examples of how Christian fundamentalism functions politically. Think about how Christian nationalism functions. What is it? It is perhaps, well, it's essentially the worship of America, right? But it's not just the worship of America as a divinely ordained nation, supposedly, but it is the worship of capitalism itself as a divinely appointed economic system. It's all intertwined. To be a good American, we've been told, is what? To be a Christian, to go to church, to be a capitalist, to be a patriot, to be a believer in traditional gender roles, traditional marriage, right? The nuclear family, so-called family values, right? Traditional family values. It's all intertwined. It's all intertwined with capital. And so by practicing deconstruction, by practicing deconstruction, we're not just deconstructing false and oppressive religious beliefs, but we are in fact deconstructing false and oppressive political and social ideologies like capitalism too. The fact is our understanding of God, the divine, the sacred, the source, the holy, whatever you want to call it, our understanding of that is always closely tied to our understanding of how society should work, which is to say that these things are all part of the same worldview and understanding of reality. And so by deconstructing one, we're always also deconstructing the other. I mean, I don't know about you, but that's been my story. When my religious beliefs began deconstructing, my social and political and economic beliefs and values were simultaneously deconstructing. That's not just merely coincidental. They're absolutely always tied together. The, this is our worldview. This, this is our understanding of reality, yes? And so by deconstructing one, you're always deconstructing the other, which means that there's something anti-capitalist about deconstruction dare I say socialist, about deconstruction. As we turn our attention to communion this morning, consider the anti-capitalist themes of this most ancient of Christian traditions. For early Christians, the ceremony of breaking bread was intimately connected with the sharing of bread. This was not just a ceremony with abstract theological meaning, but it signified how we actually are to live. It's interesting that the church in Corinth got this sacrament wrong. Uh, you can read about it, I believe, in 1 Corinthians, whereby the rich would partake in the Lord's Supper, which was a robust meal and not just you know a cracker with a little bit of juice here, but it was an actual meal. And the rich would eat it first in the Corinthian church, and the poor would have to wait for the leftovers in another room. And Paul was like, what are you doing? This is antithetical to what communion is supposed to be about. It's not just about the breaking of bread. It is about the sharing of bread with each other, especially those on the margins and those without. So the sacrament was not just about abstract theological meaning, but it signified how we are to live and that we are to share resources with each other. The Eucharist shared the Eucharist signified sharing, and the first century church in Jerusalem took this radically literally. We're told in Acts 4 that the church in Jerusalem specifically 
got together and basically formed a commune where they shared their resources. They sold property, pooled their money together, handed it over to the apostles, and the apostles distributed funds as people needed them. And actually, a lot of Paul's work going from church to church to raise money was to funnel it back to the church in Jerusalem to help them. I mean, that's kind of what communism and socialism is, right? It was radical. This under, their understanding of, of Christianity was built around this sacrament. For Jesus, too, the Last Supper, the, the first and inaugural communion was part of his self-giving. He gave bread and wine saying, this is my body, this is my blood for you. This was not merely a symbol or merely a rite or a ceremony. He said that he was giving himself, giving his life for others. Out of concern for others, giving his life for his people. And that's exactly what he did. Like the bread he, that he broke and gave to his disciples, his body was to be broken and crucified by the oppressive powers of the day. The Eucharist signifies this being broken for others. I love that. The Eucharist signifies this being broken for others, being broken for the cause of justice and love and truth. And these values are totally at odds with capital. The values and themes found in communion or sharing, self-giving, and being broken for others, these values and themes are antithetical to the themes of capital. And let us meditate on this now as we share in the Lord's Supper. Each episode of The Central Cast is followed by an interactive discussion. If you'd like to participate in recordings, or if you're interested in exploring progressive faith and theology for a postmodern context, check out centralavenuechurch.org. Here's this week's unedited discussion. Um, it occurred to me, like, while we were taking communion, I'm like, we should get back to the way that we used to do communion now. Do you guys remember that? We used to pass it around and serve each other. Um, we started doing it this way because of, you know, COVID, because um, it was like, you know, like safer. So we weren't like, I guess, breathing on each other as we are touching the same stuff. But it was such a beautiful way and a unique way that we, I think that we embodied you know, our understanding of the gospel here at Central by serving each other Christ, you know, uh, I want to get back into doing it. And it occurred to me, I'm like, you know, I'm talking about communion as it relates to being anti-capitalist. And I'm like, the way we were doing communion pre-pandemic was like a perfect example of that. Um, anyway, that's more of a, a side note. I'm always nervous when I do conversations like, or talks like this, um, because I'm wading into waters that I'm frankly, like, kind of like, I don't want to say like not an expert in, but I'm not, but I'm, I, they're unfamiliar waters, I guess is what I'm saying. Like, and there's a kind of like a Pandora's box of issues. And it's also, there's always like this air of hypocrisy. I feel like here I am, you know, living in this and benefiting from this capitalistic system. I mean, we have, in, you know, 
we have investments and things like that. And I care about what happens on the stock market because I make money when it goes up. You know what I mean? And we kind of like, we order from Amazon all the time. And that means we're feeding the monster. <laughs> um, yeah. So I was, I'm always like, but I, I care obviously about this topic and I think we should, and we should talk about it and talk about maybe the difficulties of living in this capitalistic system that we are while trying to find ways of subverting it or changing it or living differently within it. I don't know. I guess that's what I just, that's a primer for our conversation. Does anybody have any comments about any of this or questions, Jason? Yeah. Um, Max, could you, um, thanks. I have like a million comments. This is like, a pet topic it's like a pet topic for me but oh i didn't know that okay. i won't i won't yeah preach on it but uh i'm i had i have one question one critique and one thought wow. uh that i'll this stick great. to okay good go the the thought is that um capitalism i don't think is the bogeyman that um is like the unchristian uh, thing that I think we should really be focusing on. It's more the um, fanatical individualism of cowboy Western mythos, right? So I think what drives people in church and in society towards this capitalism and anti-socialism is more grievance against what they have been indoctrinated to believe is the group or uh, system that is stealing their stuff or making their life less than what they want. And I think, like I was looking the other day, you know, there's, okay, I'm gonna tangent for just a second. The the law that just got passed, that Biden passed, right? There, the inflation. The, the inflation, whatever thing. Yeah, yeah. Mansion yeah. name thing. They were saying like, well, the IRS isn't gonna target anybody who makes less than $400,000 um because the right wing was saying like oh they're gonna raise taxes on the middle class right and it occurred to me that like well you know over the last 40 years or whatever we our idea of what the middle class is has not been keeping up with the times like 58% or something of the population of the united states is like just barely above the poverty line right? The average family wage is $67,000. And the Washington's talking about, well, we're not going to bother people under $400,000. Well, the middle class, the upper middle class in, Cal in the United States is like $200,000 a year plus, which 10% of the population is making, right? So there's no middle class. I mean, everybody's poor. <laughs> There's no middle class. And and a lot of us are upset about that. And 
we want to be able to have a life where we're at peace and we can go out to eat sometimes and we can have a something that we can drive that's not going to break down and have a little bit of property that we can raise our family and have some security over. And the majority of us don't. And it's been ginned up that the reason we don't is because um, we let, and I mean, this is history, right? We let black people vote and they, and they vote to like get what they want and they're taking it away from us. We let women vote and now they can have property and things and they've taken all that away from us. And, and so it's not like that this, the capitalist system is the thing that is, um, what we should be fighting against. I mean, with the fiat currency, it doesn't really like billion, trillion, quadrillion dollars. Who? It's just a number, right? It has more to do with what you actually can tangibly touch, right? And I don't think most of us want to be rich in terms of the number. We just want to be able to have the security and to be able to feed ourselves and and feel good sometimes. And so the 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 thing that is really the problem is this you're taking it away from me, grievance uh, feeling, right? And I think that the churches that talk about uh, purpose and prosperity and those things are just feeding into this feeling that we all have that we're, we're workers who are not making what we need to make to feel like we have good lives. And rather than thinking that this, the problem is that the system doesn't allow us to have those lives we're saying that it's the other workers that are hurting us um and i'm i'm not framing that very well i feel like i'm rambling but it's not capitalism it's not well, the it pursuit how you of profit define, you're, i think you're offering up a different a slightly different definition of capital you're critiquing what i would argue is ultimately capitalism but... the capitalism definition is the pursuit of profit right uh, the acquisition of profit the whole system is designed to squeeze profit out of labor the, the amassing i would say it's the amassing of capital for a select few at the exploitation or at the expense of others i mean but you can have capitalism that that gives uh profit to major the majority of people i don't think it necessarily has to be the few uh you can have i mean like you said capitalism is a very broad thing there's not one specific implementation of it uh that is capitalism right but to me, I think the focus is really that um, it's individual, fanatical individualism is the problem to me. Okay, and I, I and that's that's fair. I just would say to that that I think a lot of people would say, well, that's that's just another word for capital. So, but I I see what you mean. Yeah. The the argument against socialism is you're stealing from me to give to the drunk on the street who doesn't work for a living. That's the argument against social. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so. And so the like the pro capitalism is it's my stuff. I should be able to keep it and not give it to you. And I think that's the bigger boogeyman there. Uh, but anyway, those are my thoughts. My question is yeah. totally tangent different, which is James seems weird in the Bible. Like he's an odd duck. Yeah. He's not like the Pauline letters. He's a little more like practical you have to live a certain way in order to be a good guy kind of thing. And yeah. do you know, I don't know anything about him. Um, 
does anybody know who James was and uh it was it was a hotly contested book when they were building the canon yeah it was it was not <laughs> it was not seen in a good light by some and i think because it was really at odds with paul's you know theology of justification by faith because james basically says no it's about works he frankly just comes out and says that it's not about faith alone it's about works uh one is you know um which of course you can do you know and conservatives do a little you know gymnastics in order to synthesize or harmonize those but james i think that was one of the main reasons why james was a hotly content and also because of his view on perhaps the rich but maybe not as much i think it had to do with it's it's disagreement with pauline theology about justification by faith but anyway that's my understanding of of why or why james is is a uh, problematic book but i like it um <laughs> any thoughts about that or anything else say that max i'm sorry i can't read yeah oh that's right yeah luther called it the epistle of straw yeah yeah because the protestant reformation was really about sola fides by faith alone right and uh not by works of the law and so yeah luther hated james for that reason um yeah but we're i'm a pragmatist and so for me faith is really about how we live in the world right how we actually live out of these virtues of love and justice so <clears throat> i like james frankly more than paul's uh theology of justification by faith but it's also quite possible that we do not really understand what paul meant by justification by faith and paul's arguably would agree with a lot of you know this idea of who you are your faith is how you live i mean so anyway um yeah it's an interesting point other thoughts remarks yeah leanne uh jason would you mind handing that to leanne passing it along yeah, I really connected a lot with what you were just saying. Um, to me, it's like just looking, connecting to that point you were making about capitalism. Just looking back to like the FDR policies and back in the day of, I'm not an expert, but Rockefeller and Carnegie and a lot of these other men, JP Morgan, there was a time where after a certain amount of money, the tax was at 90%. And the reason that we have things like Rockefeller Center is because they put those funds towards things that would not apply to the taxation bracket that they were at, which led to like these amazing, you know, and I'm not saying like Rockefeller is an inherently better person than Elon Musk, like probs not, <laughs> but like the structure was in place so that at a certain point, they had to put funds towards things that benefited other people or they just lost the money. So they might as well build a building with their name on it. Like, to me, like, I appreciate your discussion, Aaron, but like in a pragmatic sense, like socialism is the boogeyman, right? So like, how can we reframe this discussion so people don't immediately think of- Communism. Cuba or yeah. Russia. Like, how can we look Venezuela. at it less about like this or this in a binary sense and more about like, it go away these terms. What does it look like if Elon Musk is taxed in a way that benefits all of us? If Jeff Bezos is held accountable financially for the kind of wealth that he's amassing, like that's something I think lots of people can get behind. I just think that the current discourse is framed in such that that discussion doesn't happen, it, at least on the right. I mean, I know that 
I'm sure I'm not like a huge political analyst, but like I would say on the right, they're deliberately using smoke and mirrors to re-divert that that conversation. And then, you know, Elon Musk tweets like, oh, if this happened to me, it could happen to you. Like you could get taxed at 90%. So it's fear it's just, tactics and it's a slippery yeah. slope, right? The, sorry, were you uh, finished? I didn't mean to cut you off. No, just like what it would what would it look like if like we implemented some of those same practices that weren't necessarily about like, and now we're socialists because I don't think we're ever going to reach consensus in America that like socialism is the way to go. But like we can, what if we returned to some of these, you know, New Deal practices that, you know, we're actually still within this framework of capitalism so that we can move toward, you know, bit by bit, but that we're a step in a different direction where, you know, Jeff Bezos has to put either he loses that billion dollars or he does something with it for public use. That's a really good point. Yeah. Um, uh, was, I, you, you reminded me of something that corporate earnings frankly, wages, specifically middle-class wages, have not kept up with corporate earnings to any degree. I mean, you can look at the graphs from like the 1980s um, and the explosion of corporate earnings, corporate wealth. And then, Max, you posted this before, and then the graph underneath that. What's that? Ronald Reagan. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Early 1980s. Yeah. Policies instituted, right. Um, the, the disparity has become so enormous and the inability to, uh, I don't know, for people to see that is also kind of astounding, frankly. Um, and this sort of slippery slope fear tactic. If we go down, if we tax these multi-multi-billionaires, you know, the way you're proposing, it is a slippery slope. And that means nobody will be able to be wealthy or well-off anymore. I mean, it's just preposterous. It's absolutely ridiculous, you know? Um, anyway. Well, it's yeah. like, we know trickle-down economics doesn't work. So like, right. why would trickle-down taxing happen? <laughs> You know what? If you ran for office, I would vote for you. You got some great ideas. <laughs> I like your style. Um, yeah, yeah. No, great points. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Steve, would you pass that to Jen? And Jen, would you pass that to Steve? Say that, uh, uh, Bob. Oh, yeah, there's the graph. Yeah. Corporate earnings compared to wages. That, yeah, the break is at 1980. Yeah, Steve, go ahead. Yeah, so just to shift, uh, shifting this a little bit away from economics, one of the things that resonated with me this morning that you mentioned is just this idea: what we're doing here is this process of re of deconstruction. And I think right now, when you look at deconstruction stuff online, there's this idea of like I deconstructed. Like I arrived, I made the, like, I went through this process and I shifted and now I've deconstructed as opposed to what I think is more of uh, a healthy view of deconstructing as teasing out all of our views as they happen in a continual ongoing process. And I appreciated you mentioning, like, we were talking about capitalism, but then also just th these other things, you know, cis heteronormative views and gender views. And going through this sort of cyclical process of saying, okay, I'm, I'm looking at the information around me, I'm looking at the, the world I'm existing in, and I'm sort of processing through how I'm moving through the world. And as I age, and as I bring in new information, and as life changes, I'm going to continually go through this process 
of deconstruction and reconstruction, it's sort of a, it, it's a lens, right? It's, it's, you know, it's a, a radical theology. It's a, it's a lens through which we move through the world and constantly are questioning and viewing and thinking radically about the world around us. So I just want to say that that was a really good reminder for me this morning that it's all deconstruction, whether it's yeah. economics, whether it's religion, whether it's parenting, whether it's the car I drive, it's all this process of thinking radically about things. Thanks, Steve. Yeah, good stuff. Anybody else? Anybody online? Anybody on Zoom want to chime in? I always want to remember you. <laughs> okay. Well, let's let's conclude our service as we often do now by uh, saying this benediction together. You join me in this now. As we go from this place, we commit ourselves to the path of love, honesty, and humility. We dedicate ourselves, as Christ did, to the cause of justice and the courageous embrace of this life, this world, and each other. Amen. Thanks for being here and uh, for a great conversation, everybody. And uh, see you soon.